It's Tuesday, January 9th, and according to prosecutors, they haven't been shooting straight for years. We start here. A trial begins targeting the NRA. The NRA did not behave as a charity, according to the attorney general's office, but as the personal piggy bank of Wayne LaPierre. Their CEO has already stepped down, but is the entire organization on the brink? The plane door came out with barely a scratch. Maybe it just wasn't installed right. Maybe something happened in the actual manufacturing. Now airlines are finding more bolts loose on other planes. And could this election be decided by nine votes? You can essentially bet that this is going to get appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court by one side or another. Former President Donald Trump is ready to add another case to the docket. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. It is hard to overstate the impact of the National Rifle Association in this country. It was founded in New York State back in 1871, but it wasn't until 1975 that it really started getting into politics. We will stand together, strong, dedicated, shoulder to shoulder for what is right. Once a pretty casual group for gun enthusiasts, this group now created a separate branch specifically to advocate for gun rights. Then in 1990, another key moment. As lawmakers were considering legislation like an assault weapons ban, the NRA created a new nonprofit dedicated specifically to funding gun initiatives, classes, events. Legally, this was just like any other charity, meaning donations were tax deductible. And as the NRA became more flush, it became even more vocal. From my cold, dead hands. Between the year 2000 and 2014, the number of gun owners in this country remained pretty steady, but the number of guns manufactured here skyrocketed. Gun enthusiasts were more likely to own multiple firearms. Despite more mass shootings, public opinion on things like background checks actually dipped lower. They want to sweep right under the carpet the failure of school security, the failure of family, the failure of America's mental health system. Well, this week, the NRA is on trial in its old home state of New York because all that money I mentioned that was supposed to go to target practice and gun safety workshops, well, it was allegedly going to personal piggy banks. ABC senior investigative correspondent Aaron Katursky was at day one of this trial yesterday. Aaron, what is this case? The case involves the NRA and specifically Wayne LaPierre, who for three decades has led the organization misappropriating or squandering tens of millions of dollars, according to New York Attorney General Letitia James. The organization went unchecked for decades while top executives funneled millions into their own pockets. This has been an investigation many years in the making and finally uh, comes to trial after Wayne LaPierre resigns as head of the organization. But still, the attorney general is looking for the jury to hold him and a couple of other executives liable for breaching their fiduciary duties. And Brad, that's just a fancy way of saying they didn't take care of the money they were supposed to under the charities laws of New York State, because as you mentioned, the NRA is incorporated in New York as a nonprofit organization, and it takes money from ordinary people. And ordinary people, the attorney general's office said, entrusted that their money would be used for one thing, when in fact, she says it was used for something else. 
I see. So that's why this becomes something the AG would look at. Is because if this is a private company; they can do whatever they want. But when it's a nonprofit, a charity, that's that's when you can't. That's right. The attorney general's office has purview over charities, and for many years, uh, the the NRA did not behave as a charity, uh, according to the attorney general's office, but as the personal piggy bank of Wayne Lapierre. The NRA will not submit. We will not allow them to define the Second Amendment in their terms. We will not surrender our freedoms. In fact, an assistant attorney general said the NRA operated for decades as Wayne's World, the way that Wayne LaPierre was able to exert control not only over the group's foray into increasingly political fare, but also in the way that it spent money, and in many cases, on LaPierre himself. The assistant attorney general, Monica Connell, laid out Greece, Dubai, and other exotic locales that uh, Wayne LaPierre and his wife traveled to on someone else's dime, she said. The travel to the Bahamas back and forth, the private jets, the luxury hotels, the fancy clothes, all paid for with what the attorney general's office says was charitable donations. How has the NRA responded to all this? Well, the NRA, in a, in, in a sense, conceded that its finances were shady. And in fact, this has led to an internal battle that really has diminished the NRA as an organization. It was the president for a while was Lieutenant Colonel Oliver, Oliver North. He's expected to testify that he started to raise questions about the direction LaPierre was going, the finances and how money was being spent, and LaPierre forced him out. Uh, and the NRA says that it has implemented new controls over its finances to assure that money raised and money spent all done above board. Uh, but the organization and Wayne LaPierre all, of course, deny the attorney general's allegations and are on trial uh, for the next six weeks. Gun owners across America should be horrified by what I saw inside of the NRA. In fact, Brad, Joshua Powell, just at the 11th hour, reached a settlement agreement admitting that he breached his fiduciary duty to the donors of the NRA, and he agreed to pay $100,000 in restitution and testify against Wayne LaPierre and the remaining defendants. There are a number of transactions that took place in that place that would fall into the category of fraud. And that's going to be significant testimony for the attorney general's office as it seeks to prove the NRA and the others are, are guilty as charged. We are seeking an order to dissolve the NRA in its entirety. And in addition to you know getting the money back, the attorney general initially had wanted to try and dissolve the NRA, just make it disappear. And the judge won't let them go that far, won't let them impose what is commonly referred to as a corporate death penalty. But still, there could be curbs on how the NRA functions and a lifetime ban for Wayne LaPierre and others on ever serving on a charitable board again. Yeah, Aaron, you mentioned kind of how, how some have said that the NRA is no longer the center of the gun rights movement. Like, has all this kind of degraded the NRA as an institution? And if it's not them, who is? Because clearly the gun rights conversation has not gone away in this country. It has not gone away, but it's been driven by by a number of, of other groups and individuals, especially at the U.S. Supreme Court. But the NRA, Brad, no matter what the state of its finances has successfully in the last couple of decades under the leadership of Wayne LaPierre injected its political beliefs into to, to mainstream conversation, particularly in, in Republican circles. All we see is a rush to go take away 
the rights of law-abiding citizens to have guns. This assault weapon ban bill is unconstitutional. The various gun control policies being pushed by the left would have done nothing to prevent the horror that took place. Such that the, the notion of an assault weapons ban, uh, the way the NRA fought uh, under the Clinton administration, or, or really any kinds of, of curbs on gun rights or gun ownership are almost out of the question. And that's despite record numbers of mass shootings every single year. Right. If anyone's really gained the mantle of, of the gun rights movement, it's more hardcore groups, ones who chant, you know, no compromise at events, saying essentially that the NRA had become too political, too moneyed as an entity. All right. Aaron Katursky in New York covering this trial. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brett. Next up on Start Here, you don't want to see an airplane door ripped off, but it kind of seems better than it just falling off. We're back in a bit. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Over the weekend in Oregon, people began finding strange items scattered on the ground. They were from Alaska Airlines Flight 1282, where a so-called door plug burst open, sucking out air and anything else in that plane that wasn't strapped down. It was still pretty clean, no scratches on it. A couple of those items were cell phones. No joke, one of them had somehow survived a 16,000-foot drop. It was in working order. And it didn't have a screen lock on it, so I opened it up, and it was in airplane mode with a travel confirmation and baggage claim for Alaska 1282. If that's not an advertisement for durability, I don't know what is. I'm excited to announce that we found the door plug. And then, under a random tree, someone found that door plug itself. It looks just like an emergency exit door, but on this plane, it was bolted in, treated just like another piece of the wall. Which finally gives investigators a chance to examine this as they ask what went wrong here. ABC's transportation correspondent Gio Benitez has made his way to Portland, where he's been interviewing officials. And Gio, let's start with that door plug itself. It looks like these cell phones, right? Like, totally intact. How is stuff just dropping and surviving like this? Isn't it incredible? I mean, 16,000 feet. Yeah, a lot of people are wondering, like, what case did the phones have? Uh, but when you're talking about this door plug, they found it after a three-day search in the backyard of a Portland school teacher's home. 
I'd like to give another shout-out to Bob. Without him, we wouldn't have this door plug and uh, be able to examine it. So yay, Bob. He sent photos to the NTSB. They said, yep, that's the door. Now you have the missing piece of the puzzle, which is that door plug, as they call it. The exam to date has shown that the door, in fact, did translate upward. All 12 stops became disengaged, allowing it to blow out of the fuselage. Uh, We found that both guide tracks on the plug were fractured. Uh, We have not yet recovered the four bolts uh, that restrain it from its vertical movement. Some of the experts have been looking at these pictures and they've been saying, well, you know, it doesn't look like it's been torn off. There was no uh, degradation of the basic structure of the door. In other words, the door didn't fold in half and blow out. So they're maybe wondering if maybe it just wasn't installed right. Maybe something happened in the actual manufacturing before it got to the airline. The fuselage portions are all made in the same factory and then shipped by rail to Seattle. And then the final assembly of the airplanes is there. So there are a number of different places and points in the assembly process where this should have been caught if there was a defect. Well, and so while they look at that, the FAA has also just grounded a ton of 737 MAX 9s. Other airlines who had this type of plane in their fleet said they were going to do their own inspections. I mean, are there indications that this could be a wider problem that goes beyond this one aircraft? Well, this was a major breaking story that we got late last night, and it turns out that United Airlines actually found some loose bolts when they were doing the investigation and the inspection. They found some loose bolts in the door plugs of some of their MAX 9s. Mm. Now, they own and operate 79 different MAX 9s. It's it's a huge part of their fleet. They rely on them domestically. Uh, So this is a really big deal. If we have a bigger system-wide or fleet issue, we will issue an urgent safety recommendation to uh, uh, push for change. Now, here's the question, Brad. Did that happen before the airline even got the plane, right? Was it manufactured Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. way? Or was it something that happened during flight, right? During takeoff and landing and the brakes and this and that. Like the wear and tear starts shaking stuff loose. Exactly. So so we're trying to figure that out. And, mm. and I think that that is what the airline is trying to figure out because wait a minute, this is not supposed to be loose. Right. You think about, well, was this supposed to be caught in maintenance? Only during heavy maintenance. And that's something that you do every two to three years. It's not something that you do on your daily maintenance when you're going between cities and on your layovers and things like that. Mm. This is something that happens every two to three years. These are new planes. Wow. And then Alaska comes out and says, by the way, we've also found some loose hardware on some aircraft. They called it uh, in the area in question, this door plug area. So were there other warning signs that something like this could have happened, not even just on these other planes in general, but like on this specific aircraft? So in the past month, we know uh, from the NTSB that the pilots on that plane, on that same plane, they saw warning lights go off in the cockpit at least three times. It was described as pretty benign. Uh, There's a backup, so they switched to alternate uh, pressurization and reported it. Maintenance tested it. Uh, put it back in service. And the airline, after that third one, the airline did, in fact, and which was just days ago, by the way, uh, the airline did go ahead and look at it. They went into the maintenance and then they said, well, it can fly. It just can't fly over water. At this time, we have no indications whatsoever that this correlated in any way to the expulsion of the door plug and the rapid decompression. Of course, that is something that's going to be under the microscope now. Was that the right decision? 
Wow. All right. Uh, Gio Benitez there on the ground in Portland, Oregon. A lot more questions still to be answered. Uh, Thank you so much, Gio. Thank you, Brad. A week from right now, you'll be waking up to news of who won the Iowa caucus. It's next Monday. Presidential candidates are making their final pitches, including the runaway favorite. Three years ago, we were a great nation, and we will soon be a great nation again. That was former President Donald Trump in Sioux City this weekend on, wait for it, of all days, January 6th. And if the last campaign was defined by January 6th of 2021, well, this campaign could be defined by its fallout, split screens of Trump campaigning and then going to court to account for his actions. In fact, today he will be in Washington in federal court as part of the trial looking at the January 6th insurrection. ABC's investigative reporter Olivia Rubin is covering this. And Olivia, this is actually a voluntary appearance, I guess. He doesn't have to be there. So why is he there? Like, what's what's he there to highlight? Well, Trump is going back to court today, as we have seen him do quite often. And this time, it's to argue in his D.C. election subversion case that it should be dismissed. And why is he arguing it, Brad? He is claiming that he has presidential immunity and therefore cannot be charged, cannot be indicted, cannot be prosecuted for actions that he took relating to his responsibilities when he was president of the United States. So a lower court judge, the judge overseeing his case, has already rejected this argument. It was a stinging rebuke against him, but he appealed. And now it is at this second level appeals court that's going to hear arguments from both his team and special counsel Jack Smith's team today. So arguing today, really, Brad, that the case should be thrown out because of presidential immunity. That is the key phrase today. And just to sort of give you a flavor of what the lower court judge thought of this argument, she threw it out outright. She said that just being president wouldn't give Trump, quote, a lifetime get out of jail free pass and that his four year service as a commander in chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade criminal accountability. So really saying just because you are president does not mean that you can't be charged for unlawful conduct. So a clear message from the lower court judge that she found that this was not a valid argument. But of course, as we know, Donald Trump often does, he appealed and he's going to the upper court to try to get this fleshed out now. But something really interesting has already happened, Brad, because remember, a big, big issue with Donald Trump's criminal cases are the clock. He wants to run out the clocks so that he doesn't have to go to trial before mm. the election. If this trial doesn't start before he's nominated and potentially uh, elected, what happens then? Are you going to prosecute a sitting president? Will he have the power to basically just kind of make this federal case go away? So what did special counsel Jack Smith do? He tried to skip the line on the appeal and he essentially appealed up to the Supreme Court to say, hey, we know it's the appeals court that's going to hear this appeal next, but this is so important and of such great public concern that the Supreme Court should decide this issue right now. Don't wait for it to get all the way up to you. Don't wait for the appeals process to play out. Supreme Court, step in and hear it now. The Supreme Court has denied a request from the Justice Department's special counsel, Jack Smith, to settle the question of presidential immunity in regard- The Supreme Court said no. They didn't determine the presidential immunity issue. They said that they wouldn't step in and hear it out of order. Hmm. And that's why this appeals court is going to hear this argument today. It's going in order. All the while, much to Donald Trump's pleasure, the case is paused while this issue plays out. 
Well, and then the presidential immunity thing is interesting because of all the cases, like the classified documents case happened in large part after he was president. He wasn't president at the time. He can't claim presidential immunity. He was the president during the events of January 6th. That's also the time period when Georgia, that state level case is kind of dealing with in the immediate aftermath of the election. And Trump is now what? Using that same argument in Georgia, it sounds like. It's a brand new argument that we just saw from Donald Trump and his legal team in Georgia filed yesterday, Brad. And it's essentially the same argument of presidential immunity saying that the president cannot or former president cannot be charged for conduct taken related to their duties. And just to sort of lift a phrase directly from Donald Trump's uh, attorney in Georgia, he said that uh, the power to indict a current or former president for official acts does not exist. And that is essentially the argument that the power doesn't exist. You cannot do it. And essentially what the attorney in Georgia said is that everything Donald Trump did in Georgia, which we know, you know, the the public false statements about fraud in the election, calling the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes working with Department of Justice officials to try to say that there was evidence of fraud. All of those things Trump argued in this new filing were presidential acts that were related to his role. So we have already seen what one judge has said about this in Washington, D.C., Tanya Chutkin. She had those harsh words for Trump. We will hear what this appeals court in Washington, D.C. has to say. And now we will hear what the the Superior Court judge in Georgia, who is overseeing his case, We'll see as well. So there are multiple judges who are going to be weighing in on this, potentially all on track, as we would absolutely assume to the Supreme Court. But this, yeah, this is the thing, right? That you just said it. This, this will get appealed to the Supreme Court one way or the other. The federal case, at least, has to get appealed to the Supreme Court. We know at some point they will have this in front of them in an election year. Does all this mean that the Supreme Court, just I'm thinking of several cases now, just has a huge say in what this election is about to look like? You you can essentially bet that this is going to get appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court by one side or another. But Brad, remember, regardless, the Supreme Court already is going to have a say in the 2024 election because of what has happened in Colorado. Remember, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled to kick Trump off the ballot because of the January 6th insurrection. That was appealed up to the Supreme Court and they've agreed to hear it. So regardless, they are going to have some say in the 2024 election, whether it's this case or another. Yeah, and by the way, the the idea of kicking someone off the ballot is so sort of unprecedented that now you're seeing Republican lawmakers in Republican-controlled states say, well, if he can't be on the ballot in Colorado or in Maine, maybe Joe Biden should not be on the ballot in Texas because of, you know, alleged improprieties of his. So a very troubling sign as you see some of these legislatures consider kicking different candidates off the ballot. All right, Olivia Rubin in New York. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, you never want to become the punchline when you're the comedian. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. And one last thing. You know how the day after a big awards night, the winning actors make the rounds to season the momentum? Well, this felt more like an apology tour. Yeah, that's a tough room. 
And uh, it was a hard job, I'm not gonna lie. That was Comedian Joe Coy went on GMA3 after what some described as bombing while hosting the Golden Globes Sunday night. Oppenheimer is based on a 721-page Pulitzer Prize-winning book about the Manhattan Project. And Barbie is on a plastic doll with big boobies. In an opening monologue that's been nailed by the likes of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, Chris Rock at the Oscars, this got awkward quickly. The key moment in Barbie is when she goes from perfect beauty to bad breath, cellulite, and flat feet. Ah, what casting directors call character actor. <laughs> Bits like this felt sexist, and the reaction shots of annoyed celebrities didn't help, to the point where the groans seemed to throw Coy off his game. Yo, I got the gig 10 days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Yo, shut up. You got, you're kidding me, right? Slow down. I wrote some of these, and they're the ones you're laughing at. Look. And so yesterday, the morning after, you saw this kind of debate taking shape. I hit like a little uh, uh, moment there where I was just like, ah, you know, hosting is just, uh, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough gig, you know? And According to Coy, this was just a weird format for his style of comedy, which is true. This is like an impossible gig. It's like a roast, but where the audience is also intensely protective over the roastees. It's weird. But some comics described this as an example of toxic comedy, where stand-ups start blaming everyone else when their jokes fall flat. Everything okay, man? Uh, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're okay? Yeah, okay. Okay, I just want to check in with you. I didn't ask. The comedian James McElhaney once posted what he described as his own meltdown on stage to show how quickly a comic's insecurity can be projected onto the audience. People aren't making eye contact with you because you're bombing, so you call them out instead of just being funnier. Often, not always, but often, it's male comics targeting female audience members. Are you paying attention? Yes. You are? Okay. Yeah. I'm just checking. Does that make you feel better? <laughs> it makes me feel better. However, just because a joke is tired or even lazy doesn't necessarily mean it's offensive. Uh, the big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL, on the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. I swear. There's just more to go to here. You might have seen this live. Taylor Swift was in the room, and if a sip of champagne could roll its eyes, that's what she was doing. Well, the host of The View, who disagree on so many things, generally came down on the side of Joe Coy yesterday. These, these gigs, these hosting gigs, are brutal. Yeah. They're just brutal. If you don't know the room... Regardless of celebrities' feelings, one thing is clear, and Coy has admitted as much, everything is less tense when the jokes are funnier. I might need to remind our younger listeners here. Whoopi Goldberg knows what she's talking about when she's talking about hosting award shows. She was the first woman to host the Oscars. This also reminds me, The View has a podcast, not just The View, like the TV show being re-aired. I'm talking about The View Behind the Table. It's its own podcast. It features the hosts and the producers of The View. It's super candid, super interesting, and fun. You can check out The View Behind the Table wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid.
In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.